Hi, I'm Caroline Wall. I'm an alumni of the University of Chicago, and I work on Elucidations podcast. Utilitarianism, an ethical framework that deems actions good when they increase or maximize the amount of happiness in the world, has abundant opposition in the 21st century. One argument against utilitarianism takes issue with happiness as the sole criteria for ethical status. Things like justice, truth, and aesthetics may be just as ethically valuable to us as happiness, and their value may not simply be a matter of how much happiness they cause. But if we can't translate these values into the currency of utilitarianism, happiness, then we can't easily talk about whether one action does a better job of maximizing versus another. It would be like comparing apples and oranges. Tyler Cowen might argue that apples and oranges aren't so hard to compare. An economics professor at George Mason University, Cowan co-authors Marginal Revolution, a popular economics blog, and hosts another excellent podcast, Conversations with Tyler. Cowan devotes considerable attention to the idea of a plurality of goods, such as justice, truth, aesthetics, and happiness, while also maintaining that these goods are commensurable. In this episode of Elucidations, we'll discuss this plurality, along with other elements of Cohen's ideal society, and the possible routes he envisions for us to get there. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University, and uh, the author of numerous books in economics and numerous articles in philosophy, and we're here to discuss his recently published moral philosophy book, Stubborn Attachments. Stubborn Attachments, a vision for a society of free, prosperous, and responsible individuals, came out in 2018 from Stripe Press. He's also host of the podcast Conversations with Tyler, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's a long-form interview podcast that features interviews with all kinds of people, academic and non-academic. I guess one thing I'll mention about your podcast that I really like is the um, combination of seriousness and levity. I don't really hear that very often in a long-form interview podcast. Lots of uh, questions from left field. Maybe the levity is unintended, and I'm just strange. <laughs> so I find your book really interesting. And one way I might describe your approach to moral philosophy is to start with economic growth. Economic growth ends up being something that gets heavily prioritized in the approach to moral philosophy that you recommend. And I have kind of like a naive question about it. I had the impression from the book that um, you were assuming a close connection between economic growth and economic health. And I was kind of wondering... Are those the same thing? And if so, why are they the same thing? So maybe to kind of illustrate, imagine you had like a small island with 20 people on it and new people were born at exactly the same rate as people died so that at any given moment there were exactly, I don't know, whatever, 500 people on the island. Could that population be healthy economically, you know, always doing the exact same amount of work and always producing the same amount of money and, and not growing? Or, you know, does an economy need to always grow in order to be healthy? The title of my book is Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for a Society of Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals. And I think of this book as coming out of the tradition of social choice theory. How can we say ever that one outcome, socially speaking, is better than another? And one of the arguments is, in a society where sustained economic growth is possible, that if one society grows at a higher sustainable rate than another, after decades or even centuries, the one society will be much better off for virtually everyone. And that's the best we can do to solve aggregation problems. But to get to your island question, I also suggest there are a number of cases, for instance, much of the world before the Industrial Revolution, where growth simply wasn't on the table. So whatever you might think about the benefits of growth, whether you agree or not, but if you can't grow, you can't grow. And in those societies, I think the case for deontology is much stronger because you cannot create very large practical benefits. There's not that much value to be handed out. So the recipe of simply do the right thing seems a lot more compelling. So if I understand your island example, that seems to me like a prime case 
where deontology should be applied, lifeboat examples. Well, it's just a few people. Maybe you're even all going to die or you're faced with a high risk of death. There's not going to be economic growth. So the practical benefits of being a utilitarian are capped pretty low. So maybe just do the right thing. Mm. And, so it's, uh, a, it's an oddly relativistic approach to deontology, which I suspect most actual deontologists would hate. And maybe let's spell out what deontology means. So I guess I would understand that term as the idea that there are certain rules that you should follow about what's right and wrong. And those rules are, you know, fairly absolute. And doing something right versus doing something wrong is just a matter of whether or not you follow those rules. Right, like Kant or early Nozick. Mm -hmm. You know, respect people's rights in some way. Don't violate them. It's more or less an absolute commandment. And that becomes weaker the more a society has the ability to produce large amounts of pluralist value, including utility, but not merely utility. Hmm. So in other words, if we're in kind of an end-of-time scenario where the human race is not looking like it's going to last very long, that's maybe the kind of scenario in which a rules-centric approach to ethics shines. But if lying to someone would create an additional $10 billion in value, which would then be used to cure babies with polio. The case for lying is all of a sudden actually pretty good. Yeah, that's interesting. So it seems like, um, this is another thing that you've written about, but you know, you're not against moral rules, and some of them anyway you think are fairly absolute, but they're like absolute-ish. There can still be some exceptions in extreme cases, and it seems like maybe what you just mentioned is one of those exception cases if you know one snap decision very clearly will lead to massive benefit for a huge number of people then that would be an exception case if breaking a rule meant making that happen that's okay but otherwise basic rules of ethics are fairly absolute yes the word fairly is carrying a lot of weight there so if you think of ethics as making sense within some sphere within some background, some set of suppositions. And one of those suppositions is simply that humans or other sentient beings exist. You can then think within that context, some rules are are quite absolute. But if you needed to engage in a mass rights violation just to save the entire world, without which there would, in essence, be no ethics, then it becomes permissible at those margins to do even the most horrible things if the alternative is, you know, complete extinction of all meaningful life. Right. And I guess you might think that's kind of a safe backdoor or a safe exception case, because how often are we really in that situation where both the future of the human race is under immediate threat and some simple quick action will definitely lead to saving it? That doesn't happen very often. So we can kind of we can feel pretty comfortable that we're going to follow the rules almost all the time. Yes. But if you think of, say, drafting large numbers of young men to fight the Nazis for World War II. That's a pretty coercive thing to do. But there you have a case. The world was not literally physically going to go poof, but the stakes were so, so high. I would say you're in a position where a rights violation of that magnitude has a pretty good justification. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Of the world as we know, it was actually in danger, like the Nazis and Axis powers, like they could have won. Mm. I wonder whether there's a risk of future conflicts being kind of like marketed as being World War II-like in order to coerce people unjustly. And this is done all the time, of course, so the second war against Saddam. So there could be a Straussian argument for not talking too loudly about the exceptions because on average they are likely to be abused for public choice reasons. But nonetheless, if we're just stepping back in a philosopher king kind of way and asking, is this an exception? You know, I think we should grant that it is. Mm. But step quietly with your exceptions. Hmm. If you think on net rules are underfollowed rather than overfollowed, which at the social level certainly is my view. And what are some examples of some of these moral rules that you think people should generally follow? We mentioned don't lie. We mentioned um, I don't. wouldn't even put don't lie in, okay. on my list. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what is on your list? That would be a good prudential rule. I, I would endorse it, but it's not on my list in the book. The absolute human rights in my book are, are very basic, simple things. Don't kill innocent people. Don't torture innocent people. 
And it's a very short list. It's not like the UN Declaration of Human Rights, where it goes on for dozens of pages. Right. Makes all kinds of anachronistic assumptions about what a human life is. And... Right. And, oh, you have a right to a toilet. Well, it's wonderful when people can use toilets. Yeah. But I don't think it makes sense <clears throat> in the metaphysical sense to have a right to a toilet. Right. But maybe, the, yeah, right. Maybe the right not to be tortured. It's hard to see how that isn't going to be eternal or something. Right. Killed and tortured based of innocent people. Yeah. A separate issue. But I actually personally think that killing and torturing guilty people is problematic. But that's something I don't cover in the book at all. Right. It's easier to just sell people on the, the innocent victims case. Yeah. You'd really have to be out of your mind, I think, to deny that it's wrong to kill innocent people. Um. But the doctrine of rights forfeiture, we so take for granted mm. in modern American society, but I think it's actually pretty hard to justify. Mm. And what's the doctrine of rights forfeiture? Well, if you murder someone, you forfeit your rights, and we can, in essence, do almost anything we want with you. We can put you in solitary confinement, prison for life. We can execute you. Right. I recognize there's a practical problem of needing to deal with violent individuals. Yeah. But it's not obvious to me that they lose their rights just because they did something very, very wrong. Right. And certainly we'd want to take the details on a case-by-case basis. But there certainly seem to be at least some cases where you wonder whether it's motivated really by the desire to protect ordinary citizens from crime rather than something like sadism. Or even deterrence, which, again, is taken for granted to be an acceptable motive. But you could hang up the innocent man to deter the potentially guilty. And that's right. morally unjust. So to punish the guilty for reasons of deterrence, I also find problematic. Yeah, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. So the question that I still have about economic growth is, is the fact that economic growth is something we should aim for contingent on the population always growing as well? Is that why economic growth needs to happen? Because we're just getting bigger and bigger as a population? I think a larger human population, all other things equal, is clearly better than a smaller human population. But say you had a nation with more or less constant population, and many countries in the world are like that. England and France are slightly above replacement level, but they're pretty close to constant. It's hard to calibrate it exactly, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, but if they grow, say, 3% a year rather than 2% a year, over the course of 100 years, you'll have a very different society. And I think the argument holds for constant or even shrinking population cases as well. It's harder to grow with a shrinking population. So that's one reason to favor a growing population. Uh, so paying the bills of your government becomes harder if your uh, total fertility rate is 1.2. Or in South Korea, I think it's now even below 1. Mm. That's arguably their largest problem. But wouldn't a smaller population incur fewer costs for the government? Or does it not work like that? Well, usually the way you get to a smaller population is to have a lower birth rate and a lot of aging. So if you think of old people on net as receiving transfers, and if you have fewer young people, <clears throat> you're going to have a high level of taxes, your most talented individuals wanting to leave, a lot of money spent maintaining people, relatively less spent on innovating. And if you could have the same societies with higher birth rates, I think they would do better by virtually everyone, not just the new people who get born, you can get into all sorts of Parfidian dilemmas, but just society as a whole will be more dynamic, more positive, uh, have more space to explore new ideas. Doing something like, say, sending people to the moon is unlikely to happen in a society of declining population. Right. And maybe it eventually even literally be necessary if the population gets big enough. I don't know. Or maybe into the sea. I don't know. One of those places. Nevada's still pretty empty, though, right? In rural Nevada. <clears throat> it's right. not we'll all with, radioactive. We'll start with Nevada and then proceed from there. <laughs> um, so another interesting notion that you have in your book uh, you call Wealth Plus, which is, I think of it as more of like, it's similar to measuring the gross domestic product of a country, but then there, you're also looking at other stuff too, so it's a little more qualitative. But So what exactly is the difference between wealth and what you call Wealth Plus? Well, when I argue for maximizing the rate of sustainable economic growth, I don't exactly mean GDP. GDP picks up some critical elements of economic growth, but it's missing a number of important things. So the value of the environment is often misrepresented in GDP as we use it. The value of household production, as economists call it, work that people do at home that's not compensated in the marketplace is missing. The value of leisure time, in some regards, just sitting around talking philosophy, that's missing. 
from GDP the way we measure it. And indeed, I feel people often act like those are in conflict, like sitting around, enjoying yourself is hurting the economy. What we should all be doing is, you know, busting our butts 24 hours a day or something. But leisure has value too. So if you mm. properly count leisure into wealth, say some Western European nations will be somewhat wealthier than they otherwise appear. Mm. I would say that's a, a justified correction. Uh, some Asian economies will be somewhat less wealthier than they might otherwise appear. Also, the environment is important. And uh, for the most part, we know how to make these corrections. Uh, it's an interesting question why policymakers don't do it. Mm. But simply, when I call for maximizing wealth, or what I call wealth plus, I mean wealth properly understood, mm. not just the number you see in the newspaper as the rate of GDP growth, because that can be misleading. And is this a, like a quantitative thing? Like, do you have a formula to calculate wealth plus? Or is it just this general intuition that these things you mentioned, uh, leisure time, good environment, are other things we also need to aim for besides just maximizing GDP? Economists already have methods of calculating for the values of these other goods. The environment is trickier just because uncertainty is so high. So if you think, well, global warming is a looming threat to our wealth, which I would agree with, you can think that problem is quite serious, but it's still hard to put a number on. But that's a, an issue everyone has. It's not unique to my framework. Most of Wealth Plus, we have ways of valuing that are already well-established and more or less non-controversial. You know, I really like this idea. It's almost like it's a, to me, it sounds like a little more of a humane <laughs> notion of wealth and at least some of the notions of wealth that have been handed down to me from the culture. You know, the idea that, you know, it's important to be productive and it's important to do things, contribute to society, but like it's also important to live a good life and not burn out or something like that. Sure, but there's still commensurability. Mm. So this gets back to the the core feature of the book is how do we overcome aggregation problems mm. by putting these other goods into the framework of wealth there's commensurability between wealth and say sitting around talking about philosophy and again o over the short run it will look very messy the comparisons won't appear to make much sense but again if you just consider two societies one growing at one percent for centuries the other growing at two percent for centuries the one growing at 2% will be several times wealthier and a much better place that will be able to support more philosophers, support more leisure time, give people nicer, safer, more creative jobs, many other benefits. So ultimately, I'm a pluralist, but I see wealth slash utility as sort of at the relevant margins, driving a lot of the ways we actually get to more and better plural values. Okay, let's define some of those terms. So one... One thing you mentioned was uh, aggregation problems. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is an aggregation problem? Well, say there's a policy and it helps me and it harms you. In standard economics, right off the bat, we don't know up front whether that policy is a good idea or not. Now, if you're a Benthamite, you could sort of add up my utility and consider the change in your utility and try to set one off against the other and then make a judgment. I don't feel those comparisons are very defensible necessarily. But I think with higher rates of economic growth over time, again, you have a case where you're doing something like, well, you're comparing the living standards of, say, the United States or Denmark to those of Albania. And you can't, in a rigorous sense, prove Denmark is a better place to live than Albania. But I think there's overwhelming evidence that that is the case. And you can also look at where people choose to migrate. Very few Danes are banging down the doors trying to get to Albania for anything other than their vacations. And I think if you look at human health, life expectancy, again, value of jobs, ability to support higher aesthetic goods, just many, many features of life, they tend to be better in much wealthier societies than in much poorer societies. And while that is not a perfect way of getting around aggregation problems, it's simply, I think, the best one we will ever find. And since we have to make choices, why not go with the best way we will ever find of getting around, you know, what economists would call the arrow impossibility theorem. Philosophers have somewhat different frameworks, but it's the same basic idea of if a bunch of people are better off and others worse off, how do you decide what to do? Right. So it's almost like it seems like your preferred approach to what might appear to be a trade-off between the interests of me and the interests of you, the interests of person A, the interests of person B is to like ascend to the population level and just look at what's beneficial for the population. If you do that, you don't have to 
kind of like arbitrarily decide to prioritize person A over person B. That's right. Yeah. And look for long-run settings where there's not that much of a trade-off at all, <clears throat> which is like the Denmark versus Albania case. Yeah. I'm not saying no one in Albania is happier than a bunch of people in Denmark, but if you can't make that judgment, at some level, I don't think the person is taking actual life seriously. Hmm. You mentioned Ayn Rand a couple times uh, in your book, sort of both positively and negatively. One thing about this that reminds me a little bit of Ayn Rand is sort of the idea that maybe conflicts of interest between people aren't as prevalent as we think they are, or something like that. That's right, and she argued that. I mean, as a formal philosopher, she's not very good. But some of her practical observations that say wealth over time <clears throat> carries a lot of plural values, I think are on the mark. So in episode 35 of Elucidations, we talked to Martha Nussbaum about the capabilities approach to development, which she's done collaboratively with Amartya Sen as a kind of like alternative to GDP as a measure of how good the quality of life in a country is or something like that. Is your idea of wealth plus kind of similar to the capabilities approach or do you take there to be differences? I would flip it a bit. I would say the capabilities approach is closer to some modified notion of GDP than it wants to let on. It's uh, less okay. original than is claimed. So if you're just comparing levels, you can say, well, we'll look at capabilities, people in Kerala, a part of India. Their social indicators are pretty high. Their capabilities are better than their wealth alone might make it look. I mean, that's fine. But when you get into the issue of choices at the margin and commensurability, how do you trade capabilities off against each other? You then end up I think you have to end up converting them into something like wealth or modified GDP to have commensurability. And people who push the capabilities approach, it's always levels, 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 with a kind of moralizing tact on. But if you're just hard-nosed and focus on trade-offs at the margin, commensurability, it's not really that different. I think it's been over-marketed, that idea. While I do sympathize with it, but it's, it's not that different. Mm. Yeah, so maybe Wealth Plus is, uh, you know, capabilities turned up to 11 or something. More capabilities than capabilities. <laughs> capabilities with commensurability, you could say. Mm. So another word you mentioned was pluralism. And I think that kind of means different things in different areas of philosophy. But so what do you mean by pluralism in the context of moral philosophy here? That there is a multiplicity of goods. Maybe happiness or utility <clears throat> would count both preference satisfaction and felicity in the Benthamite sense. But aesthetics may have some kind of independent value above and beyond their contribution to happiness. Some notion of justice is relevant. Mm. Uh, everyone I've actually met, no matter how they describe their supposed philosophic position, I'm a utilitarian, I'm a deontologist, they all, in my view, turn out to be pluralists. So when you ask them, how do you make different notions of utility commensurable with each other, they'll sneak in some kind of implicit pluralism. You know, Socrates versus the pig, there's other value judgments in there. Hmm. You ask Kantians, how do you make trade-offs at the margin, which is, to a deontologist, an embarrassing question. Like, okay, rights violations are absolutely wrong, but does that mean you spend 100% of GDP on the police force? Well, no, we don't do that, but then they're back to needing a notion of commensurability and collapses a bit into pluralism. So I'm just up front about a framework that I think virtually everyone shares. I don't pretend to know like the true content of the actual fully realized pluralist bundle. It just seems to me uh, ethics is complex, that differences of perspective have so persisted across intelligent, very well-meaning people for literally millennia. I think it has to mean there's this multiplicity of goods and you know we should care about many of them. Yeah, so in other words, there isn't just one good that's the best possible good and which we should expand absolutely all of our resources aiming, like, only at that. It isn't like, well, making bagels is a great thing. Everybody agrees on that. But it isn't like making bagels is the one thing we should drop everything and prioritize above everything else. There is no one thing like that. Right, but you do want to look for what are the findable cases where the bunch of values we care about more or less co-move. Right. So then pluralism says, I'm not sure exactly what goes on that list of ultimate goods, but there's going to be more than one thing. And then we look for our best judgment about co-movement of the plural values. And on those cases, we can render a kind of judgment. Often there's not much co-movement, 
And in those cases, we should be fairly agnostic as to what's right or wrong. So I think it's fair to say that one of the main moves you make in your book is to say that we should care about future people and the lives of future people just as much as we care about the lives of presently living people. And that we sort of have an instinctive tendency to care more about the here and now than the future. Is that right? And, you know, so like, why should we care just as much about future people as current people? As biological beings, we're impatient with our own lives. So we're programmed to have these intuitions that the here and now matters more. But when future joys, pains, or aesthetic values or justices arrive, they will not be any less real than those same values today. And the fact that we are impatient, say, to eat now or get some benefit now is not a moral justification for counting the more distant future for less more generally. There are many other arguments you can make if you just think about Einsteinian physics with the universe as a frozen four-dimensional block of space-time. What is the future depends on you know the standpoint of the observer. But there's no moral reason in an Einsteinian framework why you should discount, say, for time any more than you should discount for space. Now, I would discount for the uncertainty of the future. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. But uncertainty of the future does not operate like length of time, right? It doesn't expand exponentially necessarily or generally. So if I'm going to take an act that means 50 years from now a current unborn will suffer severe pain, say I destroy the environment in some way, uh, in the meantime that person is not sitting around waiting, right? When the person is born and the pain comes, it will be the here and now to that person as much as the here and now is the here and now to us two. Right. Yeah, I think this dovetails in interesting ways with um, episode 97 where we talked to Megan Sullivan about what she calls time biases. And in that episode, she actually argues that it's irrational to prefer present benefits over future benefits. But I think she kind of had more in mind future benefits for the same person. That's right. Um, but yeah, so this is sort of, again, doing a, you know, kind of a similar thing, but at a population level. There's a few embedded questions in here. So the argument of my book requires only zero discounting for future and different people. That said, I also believe in zero discounting for oneself, though my arguments do not require that additional and stronger view. Embedded in this also, well, what about the Parfidian distinction? The future you, is it somehow a different you metaphysically? I'm not sure there's a factual answer to that question. But nonetheless, (laughs) your future you is not exactly the same as you in any physical sense or even moral sense. So there's a way in which the decisions you make that influence your future self involve externalities. And that at least pushes us a bit toward a zero discount rate for yourself. But I think it's much easier to argue for a zero rate across people over time than to argue for a zero rate for a single person. I see. So where a zero rate for a single person would be, I should care exactly as much about what happens to 50-year-old Matt as I care about what happens to 35-year-old Matt. But here's, I think, the ambiguity with zero discounting for a single person. Hmm. Say you are at least partly a preference satisfaction utilitarian. That is not just happiness, but satisfying a preference matters. And say a person has a preference, well, they just want you know, the New York Knicks to win the NBA title in 2021. And for the Knicks to win the title in 2030 is somehow not good enough. You might say, well, that's an irrational preference. The Knicks winning in 2030 should be as good as for them to win in 2021. Tell it to the Knicks who don't win in 2020. They don't ever win, I know. But once you're a preference utilitarian, it seems there's a lot of our preferences you can't justify at all. Like, why should you care about the Knicks? What's wrong with the Nets? What's wrong with the Blazers? But we don't dismiss preference utilitarian desires simply because the preference is ungrounded. So wanting the Knicks to win sooner rather than later, it might be totally ungrounded. But I'm not sure that's a general reason to dismiss a preference-based desire once we're counting preference-based desires at all. And that's why I think the zero discounting view within a life, it's not that easy to pin down in a you know, hard and fast way. Right. Whereas it is comparatively easy to say it's totally unfair to some child 30 years from now if they're born with a birth defect because I messed with the water supply. That's right, yeah. 
I think Parfit is the example of like future Tuesday indifference. What if you have funny preferences? You want good things to happen on Friday, bad things to happen on Tuesday. Well, is that justifiable? But again, most of our preferences are not justifiable in the sense that would be required. Hmm. So you mentioned utilitarianism, and maybe this would be a good opportunity to go into, you know, generally what utilitarianism is. Because I think one interesting thing that you do in your book is show how to make utilitarianism more palatable than it usually is to people. But let's back up first and, and say a little bit about what does a utilitarian think about good and bad? Well, there are so many versions of utilitarianism. Yeah, it's kind of a trick question, I know. There's the Benthamite view, where you sum up utilities in some way, and the rate of discount can vary. Economists think they're a kind of utilitarian in their formal theory, but they're, I would say their preference satisfaction, utilitarians who are inconsistent, and they think everything's captured in market demands in some way. If you're a pluralist, you think a whole bunch of different kinds of utility matter, and you want to look for settings where they will co-move. That, to me, is the most coherent kind of utilitarianism, but I don't see it out there that frequently. Hmm. Okay, so in other words, doing the right thing means getting the greatest number of these many different plural goods for the biggest number of people, or something roughly like that. Right, and I don't have a very strict view on how happiness, utilitarianism and preference satisfaction utilitarianism should be aggregated because they conflict in many cases, as you well know. And I'm not sure we'll ever solve those. Well, what if you could take a pill that made you indifferent to all the world's suffering? You might be happier, but it feels to many of us that that's wrong, and indeed you wouldn't want to take that pill. How do you resolve that conundrum? I don't feel I have that answer. But again, if you look for cases where enough of the happiness and preference satisfaction utilitarianisms co-move in a positive way, you can, to some extent, skirt those dilemmas. But anyway, the way you make utilitarianism more palatable is if you have a zero discount rate, the Bernard Williams conundrum isn't everyone obliged to run off and you know be a doctor to very poor people in Africa. Well, your actual obligation is to produce social value. Most, but not all people, will produce the most social value by working and being creative and being loyal to a free society in a wealthy economy. That will, in turn, do a lot to elevate poor individuals around the world. We've seen phenomenal catch-up growth in emerging economies over the last few decades. That's certainly more effective than everyone running off to poor countries to just be a doctor, is to have catch-up growth. But the wealthy nations do need to be wealthy. But nonetheless, at the margin, some people should run off and do public health work in you know, Africa, South Asia, wherever it may be. So I try to reframe that as a bit of a game-theoretic problem. Not everyone should run off and fight malaria in poor countries, but some people should. Like most game-theoretic problems, there's not a single correct solution. But you can argue that you should think of it in terms of a kind of randomized Nash equilibrium. The people who can do that at lowest cost are the ones who should do it. Those are the people who more or less are the ones who want to do it or find it rewarding. And the idea that people who find it rewarding to fight malaria in South Asia are the ones who should do it, and most of us shouldn't, that doesn't sound crazy, right? It's not this extreme obligation where you think utilitarianism is so inconsistent with common sense morality. So a zero discount rate, some economics, and a dose of game theory considerably bridge the gap mm. between consequentialism slash utilitarianism and common sense morality. And Parfit in his later two books uh, he doesn't have that. Sidgwick, in a way, came closer to that. But I, I feel that's a missing insight in the current literature. People yeah. were too distracted by the wonderful rhetoric of Bernard Williams. But it's less of a problem than Williams thought. <laughs> right. So, so if you take the view that given a choice between doing something that will make me very happy and the entire rest of the world a little bit happy, well, if you kind of like sum up the happiness maybe I'd benefit the rest of the world more. And if that's the case, I should do that. That seems kind of um, intuitive to a lot of people because a lot of people want to be generous and help others and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But then if you really follow that view through to its logical conclusion, it seems like it demands this like very monkish lifestyle of a person. Like they have to give all their money pretty much to charity except the bare minimum of what they need to eat 
or maybe as you mentioned, another option would be drop all your life plans. Really, I want to be a tap dancer and that's my calling, but instead I'm going to go be a doctor even though I don't want to be because that's going to help more people who are in need. So this is a real tension, I think, with a lot of people feel pulled in two directions. Like Mm -hmm. on one hand, I should drop everything, move to Africa, be a doctor. On the other hand, man, that's like pretty emotionally intense. I mean, I kind of just want to chill out and have a good time here, you know, and try to be the best person I can, but that's a huge sacrifice. So it seems like the way you want to get around that is by saying, well, if it was this lifeboat scenario that we talked about earlier, this like end of time scenario, maybe that's kind of what it would make sense to do. But given that it seems like there's going to be a future human race for an indefinite long amount of time, really looking after that future involves doing something a little bit closer to what we're already doing. There, of course, there are little, maybe little adjustments we can make here and there, but it does not require everybody dropping everything and moving to Africa. Sure. Let's say, you know, you're a programmer, you move to Seattle, you work for Microsoft, and you earn 350K a year, and you're just quote-unquote selfish. But you buy a lot of goods from China, South Korea, eventually other countries in the world. You're driving a phenomenal amount of economic growth. The biggest growth miracle the world has seen has come from export orientation, poorer countries exporting goods to wealthier countries, to mostly selfish consumers, A lot of foreign aid is not actually very effective. I do believe we should have foreign aid. But the model of just being selfish and spending money on foreign goods very often drives more benevolence than anything else you can do. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like people often don't talk about that that much. Uh, When it comes to China, for example, like, you know, a few generations ago, there was like mass starvation. And, you know, look at everybody now, like the descendants of those people are now not starving. Uh, and they are so, in turn right. elevating poorer countries who are their neighbors, like Cambodia or, you know, One Belt, One Road. Yeah. So there's something cumulative about it that foreign aid often does not have. Yeah. The foreign aid I'm most optimistic about is foreign aid that tends to have cumulative ongoing benefits. So particular public health problems that lead to, say, malnutrition and lower IQs, which can set nations backward for very long periods of time. It seems to me foreign aid in those areas can be pretty effective. Mm. Uh, But a lot of foreign aid, again, is not. Charities have high overhead. A lot of the money is wasted. You know, there's a philosopher. I don't think I want to out him on the podcast. Let's just call him Mitch. Um, (laughs) When Mitch was a grad student, he donated his entire graduate student stipend to charity pretty much. And he just, like, squatted in the graduate student computer lab. Uh, and he did this because he was a committed hedonic utilitarian. He wanted to give the maximum number of people the maximum amount of pleasure. And it seemed to him that the best way to do that was to just give away his entire income. So and it seems like what you were saying earlier is that the people that are kind of cut out to live that way in terms of emotional temperament or something, those are the people that should do it. But if we forget about just the here and now and look at in the long run, things will be much better for everybody if we divide up the self-sacrificing labor in that way. You know, I do think at the margin we should definitely be more charitable. And I think it's also important that people live their philosophy in some way. So for my book, Stubborn Attachments, I donated all of the royalties to one poor family in rural Ethiopia, and I've been sending them money uh, rather than receiving that money myself. And uh, that's also part of the principles of the book, that economic growth, say having a successful book and selling some copies of it, that generates revenue. That can go to help poorer people. And yes, we should buy things from poor countries, but at the margin, we should do more. And I'm trying to do more myself. So I think someone like Peter Singer, he is helpful and useful because most of his actual impact is at the margin. People are not en masse dropping their lives and running to poor countries to do whatever. I'm not even sure they would be very useful if they did for the most part. Yeah. But some people can be. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. In a way, I feel like um, you and Peter Singer kind of end up in a similar place. His version is, well, we have this really difficult to meet ideal. And he himself admits, I can't actually live the way I think we should all live. But that doesn't mean we can't have it as the ideal and inch a little bit closer and closer to it. I think it seems like the difference with your approach is, well, actually, maybe we're a lot closer to the ideal than we think currently. Um, And mine's a bit like Peter Singer without so much guilt. Like, right. oh, you're only doing something at the margin. Yeah. Well, it depends what margin you're at, but, you know, maybe that's fine. Like, yeah. There is a stipulation in the book that people are in some way obliged to be very productive. It's a broad notion of productivity, but saving and investing and working and trying to be creative, 
that's a strong obligation in my framework in a way that many people do actually find somewhat oppressive. But I'm fine with that. I'm completely willing to bite that bullet. Hmm. So I think Americans as a whole, they spend too much. They don't save enough. That investment would drive more growth, for instance. They're not cosmopolitan enough at the relevant margins. A lot of people squander their talents. They don't work hard enough. So there are strong obligations in my framework. But they're more, you might say, Puritan in a way. That is sort of a question that I had while reading the book. As we mentioned earlier, you can get around some of these what we call aggregation problems by ascending to the population level. If we just look at what's good for the population in general, we can maybe not worry as much about how exactly are we going to resolve a trade-off between what this person wants and what this person wants when there's a conflict. But that sort of makes me wonder like, how actionable the view is or how like operationalizable the view is. You know, does it mean that I can't as an individual person decide to follow your program, but that rather like the American people have to collectively decide to follow your program? Or is there a way that is there a way that your moral philosophy can like impact my personal decisions? I guess maybe investment is one thing you mentioned. Sure. I think that there is implicit advice for individuals and it boils down to figuring out what you can do to best maximize your contribution to Wealth Plus or this modified notion of GDP growth. Uh, There's not concrete advice in the sense of like, you should be a carpenter, you should be a philosopher. That will depend on the facts of the case. But the notion that your real obligation at the margin is to work, save, and invest more, you know, be more creative if you can, create jobs for other people if you're in a position to do so. And that replaces the Peter Singer-like imperative. That's absolutely there. And I want people to take that more seriously. And I think it's quite close to common sense morality, sort of what your proverbial grandmother, grandfather would tell you to do. You know, work hard, get ahead, be loyal to your friends, have and raise a family. I'm not saying everyone can or should do that. It's people who don't want a family, or maybe they don't like kids, or maybe they prefer to work really hard and not have kids. That's It all fits into the framework. But nonetheless, your obligation to try to figure out your maximum contribution is there and it's real. And when you mention investing, do you mean like investing in the stock market or is it like a broader idea like I'm going to invest time in cultivating this friendship? Broader idea. Okay. Yeah. Uh, If you invest in the stock market, you're just buying secondary claims from someone else. Mm -hmm. I mean net investment in real things. So again, not everyone is in this position, but if you can have a startup or build a factory or start a new business, that's net real investment, and that counts, at least if it's a good idea. But the stock market in that sense is overrated, right? It's secondary claims. You might think, well, if I buy stocks, it pushes up the prices. That encourages other people to invest more by issuing additional shares because the price is higher. I mean, maybe, but that's feeling somewhat tenuous to me. Yeah, it does seem like a complicated thing. Like at some level, we need a lot of people active in the financial industry to keep the economy going, but... It would be something weird if, like, literally everybody just did nothing but that. Sure, yeah. Yeah. What's an example of a policy choice that makes the mistake of not caring enough about people in the future? And then what would be an example of, like, correcting that policy mistake by caring sufficiently about people in the future? A government spends far too little money subsidizing basic science and research and development And uh, that has gone down over time when it should be going up. We're a wealthier society. We can afford to do more. Hardly anyone views that as an imperative. Politicians don't campaign on it. Voters don't seem to care about it. I think it can properly be viewed as a nonpartisan issue. More controversially, I think we, in most regards, regulate business far too much. We should liberate business from any of the shackles imposed on it. But in cases where businesses create genuine negative externalities, again, carbon emissions are a very simple case, we should be much tougher with regulations. So be tougher when it matters, but in most cases, it's too hard to run a business because the attention of, say, the CEO is distracted by legal and regulatory matters rather than growing the company. Hmm. Yeah. So in environmental areas, you favor tighter regulations, but maybe in some other areas, you favor looser regulations? In most areas, looser regulations. Uh, Finance, I would say, we should have fewer but tougher regulations. Environment, carbon 
much tougher regulations. But I wouldn't defend all environmental regulation per se. A lot of it, you know, may be pointless. But carbon seems to be clearly an issue that matters and will cut into sustainable growth, especially the sustainable part of the equation. Hmm. What would be an example of a um, regulation that, like, unfairly shackles the ability of a company to grow and make a contribution to society? Well, say you want to build more housing in San Francisco or Oakland. That's very, very hard to do. Existing homeowners, for the most part, keep you out. This is sometimes called NIMBY, not in my backyard. So for prospective entrepreneurs to start a new company in the Bay Area, you're saying to your potential employees, well, if you move here, your rent every month will be whatever. Indeed, it's insanely yes. high, yeah. and it's much harder to start those businesses. So yeah. that, to me, is a very simple example. Mm, yeah, that's a good example. I certainly feel a strong yeah. desire not to move there precisely for that reason. Yeah, Chicago is a pretty cheap city by American standards. Uh, I think this is a sort of typical formal philosopher's worry, but one thing I thought of when thinking about your position is, let's say for the sake of argument that there's no mass extinction event on the horizon and humans are going to be around for quite a long time. Well, it seems to fall from that, that there's just going to be way more future people than present people. And since there are so many more future people than present people, people who currently exist, the priorities of those people, just numerically, it seems like it could swamp the priorities of people now. And then I wonder if we get into a situation where we're kind of like forever deferring a benefit. So, you know, because there's so many more future people, I'm not really doing what I'm doing for anybody in here now. I'm doing what I'm doing for them because there's so many more of them. But then in the future, there are going to be even more future, future people. And in the future, they're not going to be doing anything for anybody in here now. They're going to be doing stuff for future people. And I wonder if this is going to be like sort of this infinite regress where nobody's ever really doing anything to actually benefit from it. They're doing it to hypothetically benefit people in the future, like forever or something. I think empirically there's a fair amount of concordance across what is good for us and what will be good for the generations to follow us. Mm. So if you think like what will actually help our children and grandchildren, if we can bequeath them some amount of wealth, of course, and producing wealth now is good for us for the most part. But more generally, good, healthy institutions, a well-functioning democracy or checks and balances or a better regulated capitalistic system as opposed to a dysfunctional one, that's what we actually want to pass down to them. And those same things will be good for us now. I'm not saying there's no trade-off. And I think with some environmental issues, you see the trade-off pretty starkly. But if it's mostly concordance, and then the theory says, well, at the margin, like you should worry more about some number of environmental issues. It seems to me that's the correct intuition. It being the correct intuition doesn't prove it's correct, but it's not violating intuitions. There's not some hand-me-down game where no one ever gets to have fun, right? If we were living a Spartan, and I mean the word Spartan literally, as people lived in Sparta, a Spartan existence today, how good would that be for our grandkids? Well, they're not getting that much out of it. They're much better off being descendants of people in the U.S., Canada, Denmark, other more or less well-functioning countries. Maybe this is the same kind of answer, but I guess you could say, like, on the pay-it-forward principle, it's true, I'm not working for any benefits to people in the here and now, and that does seem a little bit, that does seem a little bit intuitively odd, but I'm also receiving the benefits from the work that earlier people did. Yeah. There's a lot of philosophical conundrums. I don't think you can answer them yeah. without consulting the empirical in some broad way. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean very particular facts, but just the notion that there are gains from trade across generations, that good institutions benefit many people and they're durable. Those are like very broad empirical facts. Yeah. And the applicability of my arguments and stubborn attachments, they do rely on them to some extent. I don't view that as a weakness, but the sort of pure thought experiment, I think you're just left not knowing what the right answer is. But if you then wake up and see you're in a world where good institutions matter, well, you have a way forward and you should mm. take it. So another question I think somebody might have about this position is, how are we supposed to know what's going to lead to long-term economic growth? Like, we can't even predict if it's going to rain in two weeks, really. So how could I possibly really know that much about whether 
the creation of blah, blah, blah Institute or the creation of this company or the, or whatever particular administrative decision, how can I ever like really know for certain about the contribution that's going to make to economic growth? Well, I don't think you know for certain. There is a body of empirical literature on what boosts growth, and it's often easier to learn what harms growth. Venezuela right now, right? It's Mm -hmm. obviously not going very well. East versus West Germany. But that said, you ought to be fairly uncertain. So you're not completely at sea. It's wrong to think we know nothing about what boosts economic growth in terms of expected value. If you're starting a new company with a reasonable chance of success, on average, that will contribute to economic growth. But you should not be so sure of your own particular political views. You shouldn't be so sure you're choosing exactly the right course of action. You should do what you think is best, but with a kind of floating agnosticism like, gee, the chance that this is best, you know, maybe it's only 5%, but my other selections, they were like at 2 or 3%. So pick the better one, but do it with a kind of modesty and openness to change. And especially on political matters, you don't see that very often. You have people being really quite sure what is good for either their preferred ends or what is good for growth. And it's not highly certain. But for me, that's a a feature of the theory, not a bug. I'm inclined to agree. Uh, It's been a big hobby horse of mine for a while that just sort of emotionally, culturally, we need to get more comfortable with not being omniscient all the time. That's right. Um, Just, you know, work with the information you have, make your best guess, you know, prudent, cautious, trial and error, try to learn from your mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like in the political culture, there's often this mindset where we, you know, we shouldn't do anything unless we're, it's 100% guaranteed to do exactly what we think it's going to do. And you can bring classic philosophic thought experiments to bear on this. So even if you feel pretty sure, like, oh, my company will succeed, or this is a good policy, as you know, different choices you make, it remixes the whole future of humanity by changing the timing of individual conceptions, a whole new set of babies get born because you stopped at the red light rather than plowing through it. Maybe your actions lead to like a future Hitler rather than a future leader of great benevolence. And of course you can't know that. So you have to be fairly uncertain, though at the end of the day you still need to do what rational argument suggests would be best. Tyler Cowan, thanks so much for joining us. Hope to have you back sometime. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.